Because faith comes through hearing the message of Christ, this sermon has been uploaded for you by Grace Unlimited, a ministry that functions out of Living Hope Church, Pretoria, South Africa. We want Jesus Christ to have first place in everything in our church. And we want to help you know and follow Jesus in all of life and to help others do the same. Find out more or download many more free sermons at graceunlimited.co.za or livinghopechurch.co.za. huge like space you know the size of a planet or a side of a size of a star and then as soon as you've thought of something like this planet alpha hercule for example that consumes 350,000 million tons of its own mass every day just to keep shining as soon as you've thought of something big like that then think bigger think huge stretch your brain for a moment and say to yourself, okay, self, what is the biggest thing I can imagine? What is the most glorious thing? Just stretch your mind, man. Make it bigger and bigger and bigger. And, you know, you suddenly realize, uh, as you're probably right, realizing right now, my brain's actually not that big. I can't actually think of stuff that's that huge. You know, stars, the universe, huge. Can't we think of something bigger, something more amazing, something more wonderful? And I do that a lot. I think about that. And there's one thing that I want to share with you today that is bigger than your brain could ever have conjured up. Something that's absolutely astounding. Something that's so big. Something that hopefully will blow you away. If you think of something big, okay, I'm going to put my phone on silent now. If you think of something big, please tell me, okay? Please message me. And I want to read your big ideas, but I would prefer it if you message me before I get to my main point here today, okay? The big idea. <laughs> All right, so let's have a look at Romans chapter 8. And of course, Romans chapter 8 is big, 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 big. It's one of the biggest chapters in the whole of the Bible. So I'm hoping that God comes to you today by His Spirit and wows you as we go through these few verses. I mean, you can see this is verses 28 to 30, which is, a, I mean, three verses of, of dynamite in this text. And, of course, I wish I could preach the whole chapter, but three verses is, is plenty for us today, and I'm hardly even going to touch the last verse. So in verse 28, in Romans 8, Paul writes, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Three little verses in the middle of a dynamite chapter. 
It's interesting that for most of the last year, from July to the previous July, I was studying philosophy and particularly I was studying epistemology. And one of the things that fascinated me the most was how it doesn't matter how deep you go in philosophy, in the study of philosophy, there's this one question that bothers philosophers, and that is the question of certainty. Can you be certain that anything you know is true? For example, do I even know how to define the word true? You know, what is truth if I can't be certain about anything that I know? And that was one of the things that I, I struggled with studying philosophy because you go around, any of you who have studied philosophy, you know you go round and round in circles and you get stuck in this cycle of infinite regress. You know, you just say, okay, this is true because this says this is true and I know that's true because that says that's true. You know, circular reasoning, whether it's small circular reasoning or big circular, you know, secondary circular reasoning, whatever you come to, you struggle as a philosopher saying, I don't know if I can tell somebody this one fact is true. I don't know if you struggle with that. You know, maybe it's just me because I, I struggled through philosophy and I tried to come to some final conclusion. But isn't it fascinating as Paul begins this text, Romans 8 verse 20, 28, he says something so bold in a world like ours where nobody knows if you can believe anything's true. And he says... And we know this is a fact. And you say, wow, Paul, how can you say that? Well, these are the words of God. God is speaking. Who am I to go to God and say, God, how, how can you prove to me that that's true? I mean, what a bizarre thing to go to God and ask God to prove to you that what he said is true. God said, well... In Genesis 1 verse 1, you remember, we read, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we are required to believe that. God doesn't prove His existence. God simply says, well, look around you. Is it true? Is there heavens and an earth? And you say, yep, yeah, there's heavens and an earth. It must be true. But we trust God for that. We trust God's Word. We don't trust our eyes and say, you know, the evidence proves that God exists. We look at the evidence and we say, well, what God said must have been true. It's the Word of God that we trust, because God is God. If a God made this universe, we trust God. And what a wonderful thing to know that we can read this text, and we know with absolute certainty because God said it. If you can't trust God, there is no certainty. You cannot ever come to certainty through reasoning if you bypass God. And that's, that's quite a starting point that Paul puts us in. And if you look at Romans 8 verse 26, a couple of verses before this text, isn't it interesting that Paul is saying, and we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. Amazing. Our minds are so small in this world. That was one of the, the objects you know, of, my, of my test here. Think of something big. You know, even Paul acknowledges that we don't even know what to pray for. I mean, how many times do you get on your knees and it's a struggle just to know what to say to God? You know, God, help my granny who's, who's got cancer. You know, God, help my dog. You know, he's got tick bite fever. Help Uncle George because he's got a broken leg and he's in hospital. Lord, help us to have enough money. And, 
you know, I'm trying to be reverent here, but you can imagine the Holy Spirit saying, oh, you know, th- these prayers are so primitive. You know, can't this guy see the world, man? Can't he see God? Can't he see this big environment that God has put him into? And he's like this blind little, you know, like baby rat, you know, just sniveling around trying to find something to eat. He's like so primitive. And what a wonderful thing that I don't even know what to pray for. And the Holy Spirit comes and says to the Father, Father, this is what Alan's actually trying to say. And the Holy Spirit says these glorious and big things to the Father. The Holy Spirit pours out the heart of God to God on my behalf and says, this is what Alan's saying to you. And I'm like, yeah, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for praying for me because I'm, honestly, my mind is so small. The concepts in this little brain of mine are so limited. I can't think on this big scale. And how wonderful for a person who can't think on that big scale to read a verse that says, and we know. And I've got to just say, oh, do we know this? Yes, God said this, so I can stake my life on this. I will die believing this. And we know. What, is, what do we know? We know that God works. In the NIV, it says God works. And if any of you have studied this text in the Greek, you know there's a textual problem here. And it doesn't actually say that God works. It's, it's a sentence where the subject of the sentence is left out. So we imply that it is God who's working all things for His good and for our, for our good and for His glory. Who else can work all things for the glory of God and for my good? We imply in this text that this is one of those textual problems you come across when you're studying in the Greek and you, you scratch your head for a long time and you try and work out whether what you're saying is true or not. But I'm confident enough after reading all of these people who've commented on this to say, yes, it's God who's working these things. And then you can cross-reference that. You can go to a number of other texts, Colossians 1, for example, and you can see how it is the Son. You know, all things were created by the Son and for the Son and through the Son. So you, if all things are attributed to the Son, you know, if this is a God thing that is happening, God is orchestrating all things, I think we're safe enough to assume that the subject of the sentence is God himself. We know that in all things, God, He works all things for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. And now, we need to pay attention to this text because Paul does this very unusual thing here. As he's he's opening up this thing, you know, he's opening up this vast, amazing concept here for our little minds to just, you know, get onto with our fingernails, he's... He's giving us these tantalizing little hints at what he's about to say. He doesn't explain them in detail. He comes back later and he hits you with with massive force as he opens up this massive concept. So we've got to just be content with a few things at this stage. When he says all things, God works in all things, repeated a number of times in the New Testament, that includes every single detail of your life, including your sin. You know, as one, I haven't listed all of the text here, but your sin is one of those things that God works together for your good and His glory. Even your suffering, God works together for your good and for His glory. Even your groaning in this very chapter, Romans 8, God works together for your good and for His glory. And even your death. Imagine something so glorious that I can die... And it cannot shake God's purpose for me. 
I mean, what else in this world is so big and so amazing that not even your death affects that purpose? I mean, everything messes, everything gets messed up if you die. Eh? Romans 7, Paul makes up that, he makes that point with the law. Remember Romans chapter 7, right at the beginning, that first part of Romans 7, he's saying, let's say you've got a man and a woman who are married, and you've got the law that binds that man and woman together in marriage, and now one of them dies. What about that person? Is that person still subject to the law? Of course not. He's dead. Nobody can find me for any law once I'm dead. Even our death cannot affect the all things that God works together for your good and for His glory. I I don't know if you find that encouraging, but for most of us, death is quite a big thing. You know, it's something that really messes up our plans. But imagine having plans that are so big that you can die and it's just like this and your plans carry on. (laughs) That's big, guys. (laughs) That is big, all right? But He doesn't just work all things... He works all things for the good of those who love Him. And you know, I've said here from this pulpit and in person and in lectures and all of that stuff, I've said this again and again and again, that when we're talking about good in the New Testament, agathos, we're talking about something, a synonym of the word beautiful, something that's good, something that's beautiful, something that's attractive. God is working together all things for something good and beautiful and attractive for you who love Him. Imagine that. I mean, look at the bleak nature of so many of our lives. Look at the corners that some of us have managed our lives into. And you say, you know, life is not going to look very attractive from this point on. You know, from here it's just loss, loss, loss. I've messed up so many things. And here I come to this point, I, I can't think of a single family member who would be happy to see me at their door. You know, I've, I've messed up my relationships through my own rebellion, and nobody wants to know me anymore. Imagine you realize that God has good and beautiful things planned for you that not even death can derail. It gives you hope, man. doesn't matter how bad the situation is in the world. You know that this one little flicker of light gives you hope, man. And you can stand there and you can say, Thank you, God, but... But I notice there's a detail in this text, and it says God works all things for the good, you know, together for the good of those who love Him. Am I a person who loves God? Are there, is He saying that there's some Christians who love God and some Christians who don't love God, and God is only working things together for the good of Christians who love Him, and He's not working together for the good of Christians who don't love Him? No. That's not, is definitely not what he's saying. It's not a selected group of Christians. He's, he's making this group of people who love God synonymous with Christian people. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've been justified through faith, God classifies you as an individual who loves God. And you say, that is absolutely amazing because there's so many times when I look at my own heart and I realize, you know, God is is a hindrance to me. You know, now I've got to read my Bible again. Now I've got to pray. It's so difficult. Ah, I'm about to go to bed and I realize I haven't read my Bible today. And I don't know, maybe maybe I'm particularly fallen, but I think maybe there's some of you in the room who can identify with me. It's difficult to keep up Christian disciplines. It is difficult. And you realize that if you were in love with somebody and you realize how spontaneously you respond in love, 
It's not like that with your Bible often, hey? And what a wonderful thing that God is classifying you, even though you are conscious of your own fallenness, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, is classifying you as a person who loves God. I just say, God, thank you for your mercy that you classify a person like me as a person who loves God. What a glorious truth. What a wonderful reality. And he's working all things for my good and for his glory because he classifies me as a person who loves God. That gives you hope, man. Gives you, I mean, it doesn't matter what you're facing today. That gives you a little bit of hope. So we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. And then another classification who have been called who have been called. And this call is something wonderful. What do we mean by this call? And I'm hoping as we look at this pool in front of us today, there's this pool where we're going to baptize um, Derek and Monique today. What a wonderful moment this is going to be. And what we're celebrating is this one moment where God broke into both of their lives by His grace. He arrested them by His grace. He opened their eyes like Saul on the road to Damascus, and suddenly they could see Jesus. They could see the glory of God for the first time. They could see the kingdom of God for the first time, and it became a reality to them that they'd never seen before. What is this call? The best way we can describe this call, this is not what I'm doing today, you know, calling upon you to look at what I'm teaching from Scripture and saying, believe it. This is the call that God issues by His Spirit into the heart of the individual and awakens them from spiritual death. What a call, man. Imagine being, you know, a loser like me. And God comes to me out of all people on the face of this planet and He says, Alan, I want you. And here, as an evidence that I want you to be in my personal space forever and ever, I'm going to give you spiritual life. I'm going to give you the ability to see spiritual realities. And I'm like, what? This is unbelievable, God. It's like Lazarus lying in his tomb. And Jesus stands outside of the tomb and he says, Lazarus, come out. And that one sentence that follows in John 11 there is is one of the texts that fascinates me more than anything else in the Bible. The dead man came out. (laughs) I mean, what is this? A dead man coming out. Since when do you see a dead man coming out? It's bizarre and it's wonderful at the same time. Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And the only explanation for that is that as Jesus issues the call, he issues life for that call, and that life enters that dead man. And that dead man, all he's doing, he's lying in his bed and he's not feeling well. Next thing he hears Jesus calling and he gets out of his bed and he's like, hey, why have you guys tied me up? And he's like, you know, like he starts looking around, you know, he gets this rag off his face and he's, you guys have put me in a grave. You know, can you imagine he's, I mean, he didn't know he died, I'm sure. He didn't like, okay, now I'm dead, I'm in the grave. I mean, he's, he's dead. They didn't put him in the grave before he died, I'm sure. But imagine those moments. He's just, he's lying in his bed. He wasn't feeling. Next thing he wakes up and Jesus is calling him. He thinks, oh, Jesus is here. He's going to go and see Jesus. But he's tied up in grave clothes. What happens to that guy? is what happens when God issues this effectual call. This call that awakens a dead soul from spiritual death into new life. 
I tell you what, man, that's what we're celebrating here at this baptism. We've got Derek and Monique coming in here and saying, this, is, this has happened to me. They're standing making a public declaration to you saying, God has called me like he called Lazarus out of his grave. Spiritually speaking, God has called me into life. And I'm celebrating that. This is the greatest thing in the world. If somebody comes in here and puts a gun to my head and says to me, renounce the name of Jesus, you can say to them, you know what, it doesn't matter what my mouth says. I'm alive. I can't change that. It's impossible for me to go back on the fact that God has made me into a new creature. It's a fact. It's not something I decide to do. It's something God has done. Those who are called according to His purpose. What a wonderful thing. As I, as I stand here today, I can tell you one fact that I absolutely know for certain. We know that God works all things together for your good and for His glory, for those who love Him, for those who have been called according to His purpose. What is God's purpose? What is this treasure that God has at the end for you and I? We're going to look at that in a moment. But we know that God has a purpose. Remember a moment ago we said that God has purpose in your suffering. That's one of the biggest contributions that theology can make to the suffering world. Is that we, out of all people in the world, we know what the purpose in suffering is. God has told us. It's no mystery. We don't have to work out why there's suffering in this fallen world. We have a God. We have a loving God. A God who providentially works all things for your good and for His glory. Okay, now... If you've, if you've lost me, okay, this is the moment that you can't miss. This is a step of logic that we've got to catch. Because if you catch the step of logic, suddenly this text is going to become so much more wonderful to you. Okay, you know, logic is beautiful stuff, and logic brings such meaning to a text. So, we know this, okay? Here's the logic. We know this for a fact. God works everything together for your good, for His glory, for those who love God, who have been called according to His purpose. Now notice what he says next. He says, he says, um, because those God foreknew. These things work together because of something. He's given us a reason how we can know that these things are actually true. We can know that this mechanism is going to work like this because of the following statements that Paul is about to make. So I just want you to notice that this is a pivotal moment in the text. You can't miss this. God is working for your good and His glory because of this one reason. This is how I can absolutely be certain that God is going to actually fulfill this purpose. Now listen to this reasoning. This is absolutely brilliant. Because those whom he foreknew, he predestined. So this is based on the fact that God has already done something. Which means if God has already done this one thing, and he says, you can be sure that I'm going to work all things together for your good and his glory... If he tells you that, I can believe that because God has already taken steps to put this thing into place. He's already made it certain. Now, follow me with this. He says, "For because those God foreknew. What does foreknew mean? What does it know? 
foreknew, this, this idea of foreknowledge. If you look at all of the lexicons and you think of BDAG, you know, BDAG is one of those, one of the big uh, sort of Bible dictionaries. You know, it gives you all of the words in the Greek New Testament. It gives you all of the variations. It's one of the most thorough uh, Greek lexicons you can buy. And he says that this word for new is used in a number of different ways. But in this particular context and a couple of other contexts, he's not just talking about, oh, I know that there's going to be rain this afternoon. Like as if I know some, you know, I read the weather and I say, yeah, I know it's going to rain this afternoon. It's not just knowledge about something that's going to happen in the future. It's a knowledge that causes something to take place. It's a knowledge that determines so it's like, you know, if, if I look at, let's say I go to a bookshop and I look at a book in that shop and I say, you know what, I love this book so much. I've heard about this book. This book is dear to me. I'm going to buy this book. Why did I buy the book? Why did I go through the action of buying the book? It's because I loved that book. I heard about that book. That book was dear to me in my heart. So how do I know God is going to buy the book? How do I know God is going to work all things together for my good and for His glory? Because He loves me. He came to me. He, he knew me in His mind and in His heart forever ago. And He said, I love this guy, Alan, so much. Not because of anything in him. I mean, God knows and you guys know there's nothing in me that would make God look at me and say, this guy is amazing. Quite the contrary. God looks at me and He says, because I am a loving God, because I am generous, because I'm merciful, I look at this poor little miserable rat and I'm going to give him the kingdom. I'm going to give him glory. Foreknowledge. A kind of a knowledge that all of God's action is based upon. He looks at me and He says, I love this guy and I'm going to give him everything. If you look at the verb ginosko in the Greek, that's the verb that this word foreknowledge is based on. And, you know, you look at the version proegno, which is, you know, the form that we have in this particular sentence. We're speaking about uh, a word that has the connotations. You know, a connotation is the sort of emotional content of a word. You know, you could say, I love you, and someone could say, I love you too, while they're busy trying to get their keys and they're walking out the door. That's, I love you too, doesn't really mean much. But if, you know, when you're just getting married, and, and the pastor or whoever's marrying you says you may kiss the bride, and you say to your bride, I love you, that's a different kind of I love you to the kind of I love you that you give them 20 years later, you know, when you're busy rushing out of the house. You know, kiss on the forehead, or kiss on the cheek. You know, God is that, you know, those kind of I love you kisses that you used to have when you first met. Hey? So, this, so the sense over here, the connotation, the emotional baggage in this word. One guy by the name of Kyle Rader who wrote a whole doctoral dissertation on the relationship of foreknowledge to predestination in this one verse. 140-something pages, he discussed the relationship of these two words in this one verse. He writes that the connotation here of foreknowledge is love, affection, and relationship. I mean, God loved me before I existed. God had affection for me before I existed. 
God desired relationship with me before I, I existed. How long has it been? How long has God desired this relationship? How long has God been affectionate toward me? Did it start the year I was born? Did it start 10 years before I was born? Did it start when my parents were born? Did it start when Moses was born? Let's go all the way back. Did it start when God created Adam? Did it start when God said, let there be light? Honestly, you can never draw it back to an origin. If God foreknew me, if God loved me before the world began, this love must have been with God in the heart of God as long as God has existed. Forever and ever 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 and ever. There's been affection in the heart of God for a worthless guy like me. I mean, can we imagine that? How many of us in this world just long for one person to love us just a fraction of that amount? In marriages, how much marriage counseling I do, and married couples are lonely. They're living with, inside of the closest relationship that humans can experience, but they're lonely because we, we just lack the capacity or the will to love each other in the way that we should love each other. Imagine just one relationship that was just a fraction of God loving me and having this affection for me forever and ever and ever. Absolutely astounding. Absolutely amazing. This was, as this Kyle Rader says again, this is prior intimate personal knowledge. Now, this is one thing. How long did God have to think about his relationship with me before he created me on this earth, knowing that all the mess I was going to make? I mean, you, let's say you're going to buy a car, for example, like I did when I bought this car that I'm driving now. I went down to Cape Town. I had a look at that car. I drove 6,000. I traveled 6,000 kilometers looking for this one vehicle. And I looked at this one, trash. This one, ah, trash. Just ruined, smashed, you know, destroyed by people who, you know, who don't know what they're doing and who just abuse stuff. Finally, I find this one vehicle. It's the best of all of them. It's still ruined, you know, still damaged. But I think I can fix this. I can fix this. And I'm evaluating all of that stuff. Eventually, I went to the guy and I said, no, I'm not going to take this vehicle. And I carried on looking at other vehicles. And I saw trash, trash, trash. And eventually, finally, when I'd seen every one of those cars that was for sale, I went back to that guy and I said, you know, this car is not in good condition, but it's the best of all of the cars I've seen. And the second time I went back there, I went and bought it from the guy. And isn't that amazing? You have time to think about your purchase. How long has God had to think about a useless person like me, drawing me into his kingdom, into his glory? He's had forever to consider his affection for me. And when I'm born, you know, God knows all of the mess that I'm going to make in my life. And he watches me day after day after day, sitting against him, disregarding him, having no love in my heart for him, just doing my own thing. You know, pointing a finger in the face of God. And he, 
His love just settles. It continues to be upon me. An eternal love that stretches from eternity in one direction to eternity in the rest. He's, he's just never had a chance. He never had a moment where he said to me, Alan, you know, I've, I've, con- I've reconsidered. I actually don't want you. You're too much of a loser. I mean, he's had forever to think about it. And God has never reconsidered this. I can know this for a fact that God is going to work all things together for my good and His glory because of this thing. God has known me affectionately and loved me for all eternity and He's not going to change His mind. Tell me that that's not the most beautiful thing you've ever heard in your, in your life. Absolutely beautiful, man. Absolutely stunning. Now, this stuff lives in my head. It turns around in my heart all the time and I can never get over this one reality. This is the big thing. Please tell me that when you WhatsApp me, this is going to be the thing you're going to tell me. (laughs) This is the big thing, okay? This is the big picture, the big idea. So we know this with certainty because God has already affectionately loved me for all eternity. Therefore, He will work all things in this created order for my good and for His glory because He classifies me as a person who loves Him and He classifies me as a person who's been called according to His purpose and He has glorious things coming. So because God foreknew me in this text, because God knew me in this affectionate way, I'm not saying I existed then, I was a thought in the mind of God. He knew me before He created me. We're not going into Eastern religions here. Because He loved me, He predestined me to be conformed to the likeness of His Son. So here you can see these two words, foreknowledge and predestination. So in the the foreknowledge side, you've got God loving me with all of His heart, so much so that He's willing to purchase me at the cost of the blood of His Son. So what does he do with a passionate love like that? He says, I choose that this man, this Alan, is going to be with me in my purposes, in my glory, forever and ever and ever. You're like, wow, God, there's so much that has happened behind the scenes that I've been unaware of, and now you've just informed me of all of this information. And anybody who comes into the reality of this should say, God, this is absolutely astounding. You're like, why me? You know, of all of the people on the face of the earth, why me? And what is God going to say? Because I loved you before the beginning of the world. In fact, I created this universe in order for you to have a place to live. So I could call you. I could call you effectually. I could give you spiritual life at the moment of my choosing. And I could call you into a new life where you can see spiritual realities. You say, God, this is too much. And you say, yes, I know it's too much, but it's true. You can know this as a fact. In our uncertain world, we can know this as a fact. He predestined us to be something specific. What does the text say? He predestined us to be conformed to the likeness of His Son. (coughs) We're talking about the good. And we know that God works in all things for the good, the beautiful, the beauty of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. What is this good? We, we see the good here in this predestination. He predestined me to be conformed to the likeness of his son. Now, what is that? What is the likeness of his son? 
When we begin to look at the likeness of His Son, I mean, just flip over to Colossians 1.15 for a moment. I can't remember if I put it on here. But Colossians 1.15 says, He is, that is the Son, He is the image, same word as we used over here, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So the Son is the image of God, and God is going to conform His people to the image of His Son. And like I've said here before, that is, that is bringing the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ so close to God that it's almost blasphemous. You, you, you don't even want to say that. You know, like Jesus in his high priestly prayer, praying to his Father, just as you are in me, Father is in the Son, and I, the Son, am in you, may they also be in us. Just like that. And you say, yo. That is a concept that I, I'm, I'm afraid to even say what Jesus is saying in a text like that. How can God bring me so close to God himself? Of course, he's always God. But God is bringing you so close to himself, closer than any other being in the created universe. You say, what a privilege. God knew me affectionately before time began, forever ago. And he said, I choose to have Alan with me in my glory, so close to me that these words are scary close. And I'm going to live with him forever and ever and ever. He's going to be like my son. He's going to bear the image of the son of God. Absolutely astounding. God's vast purpose for this universe. God includes every single aspect of his created order in this, this all things. What a, what a glorious reality. I'm going to be like Jesus. You guys can look at me now, and you can, you can see a weakling. You can see a guy who can't really make much of his life. God didn't call many really intellectual people. He didn't call many people who are good-looking or who are like really, really skilled. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, you remember. He pretty much scraped the barrel. He pulled out all of the losers and all of the useless people, and he brought us all together. And that's what makes this so wonderful, that God is going to make us the most excellent specimens of human beings forever and ever and ever. He's going to work all things to that end. Jesus Christ is the full measure of all beauty and glory, and you and I, as believers in Jesus, are going to be like Him. The full measure of beauty and glory. We will be made Him like Him in such a way that Christ will always be the firstborn. And when we talk about the firstborn in all, throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, firstborn, we're talking about a preeminent one. We're talking about the son who takes the highest honor. So even though we're going to be in the image of Christ, we're going to be like Christ, he's always going to be the, the preeminent one. He's always going to be our treasure. We're going to look at Jesus and we're going to respect him beyond the way that we deserve respect, even in our glorified state. God is going to elevate you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ to glory and to dignity that is unspeakable. Remember what Paul said to the Corinthians, said, you know, no eye has seen, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. And to some degree, he carries on that he has revealed this to us by his spirit. So we've, we're just getting our fingernails into these things. But there are glories coming that we cannot even imagine with our minds right now. 
beautiful, beautiful, beautiful heart we see in God intending beautiful things for you and I in our miserable fallen state right now. I hope that encourages you. I hope that lifts your heart today as, you, as you're thinking about all the pressures that surround you. You're thinking of all the stuckness that you find yourself in and the struggle to progress. Maybe, you know, struggle with a place to live. Struggle with work. You know, working an entire month away and there's just never enough money to cover costs. Thinking of relationships. Terrible, terrible, terrible relationships where there's violence and hostility even in marriage. What a wonderful thing to know that God has beautiful and glorious intentions for you that could unfold at any moment as we see Jesus bursting through the scene and calling us home to be with himself forever. God will elevate you to glory. God will, God will elevate you to places that you cannot even imagine with your mind, not even in your wildest dreams. Interesting thing is that in the New Testament, we see that God is actually starting this process right now. Even though we're weak, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, you know, Paul quotes, he says, and we who were un- thinking of Moses, of course, when Moses came down from the mountain, you remember with his face shining after he spoke to God. He says, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect, reflect, the God, reflect God's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. He says we are being transformed. So day after day, as we come, even in our difficulty, even in our struggles, as we come to the text of Scripture, and we soak ourselves in the Word of God, and we use our minds, and we think of God, we think of the glories of our God, and we come out after spending time with Jesus, when we spend time with our God, we are in the process of being transformed. We're in the process of becoming more and more like Him in this world, a process that's only going to be completed when we see Him. But in a very real sense, as Paul says again in Philippians 3:20 to 21, that this process will obviously only be completed when we see Jesus. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there. It's interesting the terminology he uses. We are eagerly waiting for our Savior. But isn't it interesting in this concept of foreknowledge that we've been pointing out, Jesus is eagerly going on a mission to rescue his people. Just as he was eager to rescue us, we are eager to be rescued now because we see what he's brought us into. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, sounds familiar, everything under his control, all things, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. And of course, we could follow this through the New Testament and we discover that this renewal, this transformation that he's going to bring about in his people is not only going to be physical, but it's going to be spiritual and moral. He's going to put you in a state where you can never, ever sin again. The possibility of sin is completely and forever removed. That's one thing I'm longing for more than anything, not disgracing my Savior again. Knowing that he saved me, but sinning against him. What a terrible thing, sinning against grace. So we know this for a fact. We know it for a fact that God works all things for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. 
How do we know that he's doing that? How do we know that that's a certainty? Because God has already loved me affectionately forever before he created this world. And because of that, I know that God is going to accomplish what he has just said in verse 28. What is he going to accomplish? He predestined me to be conformed to the likeness of his son. He will make me like Jesus. It seems impossible right now. It seems the distance is far too great. But in a moment, God is going to transform me. You know what? You who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, remember this day. Because I'm going to elbow you in the ribs and I'm going to say, I told you, man. I told you. Look at me now. <laughs> you know, just look at what God made out of that material. <laughs> you're going to look at me and you're going to say, yes. You know, what it must have taken God to bring about a transformation like that. And that's the point. It's to the glory of God, the distance between what I am now and what God is going to make me into is so vast that it takes the power of God. That's why Paul is talking here. You know, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control. I mean, the power that orchestrates the universe is the power God is going to exert to take me from this miserable, lowly state to a state where people will look at me and say, that guy is glorious. That's the only word. It's the word the kids who are with us are looking for today, in case there are any kids left. What is he predestining me to? This text says so as well. That he predestined us to be conformed to the likeness of his son, so that, reason, why is God making me like Jesus? So that he, Jesus, might become the firstborn among many brothers. Like, ah, oh. okay. So there's, so there's this glorious God-man. God comes into the world as a man. He becomes a man. John 1.14, you remember, says the word became flesh. And you want to say it is absolutely astounding that the infinite God could become man. And he comes into this world and he becomes flesh. He becomes flesh. There's a perfect humanity united to the Godhead forever and ever and ever. The Son will always be human. What a glorious reality. The glorious God-man. And as I enter into the presence of God, what I'm going to see is that glorious God-man. And I'll tell you one thing. When you and I see the glorious God-man, even though we've been made into His image, there's not one of us will say, I'm, I'm of equal quality with that God-man. He's always going to be our hero. He's always going to be the one of whom heaven sings. Remember Revelation chapter 5. They're singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. The whole of heaven is singing about the son. What a glorious scene as John comes in to the throne room of God. And he just hears all these praises. Thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Singing about the one who bled and died in order to purchase men and women for God. And there I come, you know, a street beggar in the presence of the king. And I'll see the glorious champion, hero, God, man, Jesus Christ. And I will never think that I'm equal to him. But as everybody looks around, we see that we all resemble him in some way. But he will be the firstborn among many brothers. Isn't this, isn't this thrilling? That God's intended purpose is that there will be many like Jesus. That he has a vast nation. 
a vast mass of, hu- of humanity all shining with the glory of the God-man himself. Remember Romans 8, uh, 8, 18. He speaks about the whole creation groaning in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. This glorious moment of unveiling where the glory of God shines out of his people. So Jesus is always going to be the preeminent, glorious God-man. A vast family who resembles him. I mean, you and I all long for community. You know, our cultures celebrate community. We enjoy eating together. We enjoy loving each other. We enjoy hugging each other. You know, we enjoy having relationship. We like shaking hands and, you know, sometimes not letting go. Just like, in, you know, my sort of culture where I grew up was unnatural for men to hold hands, you know. But in this church and, you know, with my African brothers, you know, when I shake hands, it's like you hold hands, man. You talk and you're like holding hands the whole time. It's, it's a little unusual, but, but it's lacquer, man. It's, it's awesome to be connected, you know, with people. Imagine a whole family where not one single member of the family will ever look at you again and think a wrong thought. Never say, ah, this person gossips, because that person's never gossiped. Imagine every single thought of every single person in that glorious, vast family, and we all love each other completely perfectly. We're all completely happy, completely joyful. We're completely celebrating community and culture for the rest of eternity like Jesus. Say, it just just sounds too good to be true. But this is what God has called you into as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the big idea. Another picture of this is not only this vast family of brothers like the son, but remember in Ephesians chapter 5, you remember when he gives that whole section on marriage, you know, marriage roles and husband and wives and what do they do in marriage. At the end of that chapter, he says, this is a profound mystery. What's, what is this mystery, Paul? He says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. When he's speaking about how wives should function in that role, Underneath their husband's loving leadership and husbands should function in that role as loving leaders and being tender and compassionate and sacrificial with their wives. He's saying, you know what, this, I've been talking about husbands and wives, but actually I'm speaking about the glorious mystery of Christ and his church. A small little pre-shadowing of Christ and his church. And what a wonderful moment to come up the aisle as a bride. And you see the glorious God-man waiting to be your groom. And you're married, the church, the bride of Christ is married to the Son forever and ever in the most blissful marriage this universe has ever seen. Complete fulfillment, complete satisfaction, right down to the depths of your longings. So you realize, finally I'm home. (laughs) Finally I've realized what God made me for, this longing heart. Absolutely every aspect of your life works into this plan. I mean, this might sound weird, but this is kind of what I'm trying to say. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you exist, obviously you do. If you're hearing me, you exist 
that means logically, according to the logic in this text, if you are here, then your glorification is absolutely certain. If you exist, your glorification is absolutely certain. How do I know that? Because God loved you before the beginning of time. And He works all things so that His purpose of glorifying you will be accomplished. And the fact that you exist and you're a believer in the Lord Jesus means that your final glorification is absolutely certain. You follow my logic? Maybe just as we try and rush to a close here, I could mention some of the few all things that we're talking about because this, make, this brings it down into your daily life. You know, it brings it down to where you're sitting in your seat and where you're lying in your bed at home, you know, driving in the car or trying to repair something that is, you know, infuriating. Like my next door neighbor, I used to live next to, next to a guy who used to love alphas and he loved the old alpha sud. I don't know if anybody here is old enough to know about alpha suds, but an alpha sud was a messed up car, man. And you know, that guy used to get drunk, or half drunk at first probably, and then he started working on his alpha. And you could see the beers going down, one after the other. And next thing, man, you would hear him shouting and swearing at his car. You'd hear things flying in the garage. You know, you'd see tools like hammers and stuff flying out of the garage door, boom, 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 into the garden. <laughs> one, guy, one day the guy was kicking dents in his car because he was so angry. You know, in that moment, I don't know if any of you do that, but in that moment, this stuff is meant to come home and say, you know what, God is working, even this irritating moment that I'm, I'm enduring right now, God is working this for my good and for His glory. What does He include? Think about the human family tree, for example. I've got a, I got a picture here that's going to come on in a moment. You can look at that. You can see I used stock footage here. You see there's a big watermark in the middle. So don't let that distract you. If you want to go find the picture, go there, wherever the watermark is telling you. I don't always find the picture I want that's, you know, free or on Creative Commons or something. So there, I left the watermark there so you can see it. Um, think about the human family tree. I mean, we've got a geneticist here in the church today, so he's probably going to facepalm while I'm telling you the stuff. But, you know, think about Adam and Eve. Inside of Adam and Eve is enough genetic material to make every single human being on the face of the earth. You know, all of the requirements, you know, even my eyes, the way they were formed, the genetic information was stored in the physical bodies of Adam and Eve. And the absolutely fascinating thing that is amazing is that when you have two parents who produce a child, half of each of those parents' genetic information is lost. You know, that in my family... That half from my wife and that half from me is never going to influence our children again. It's gone. Gone forever. And as the generations go on, there's so much loss of genetic information, you know, that people become more and more characteristic in, you know, in their looks. We, we all develop certain characteristics that just become more and more pronounced as the human tree goes on. And isn't it fascinating, just this point... Isn't it fascinating that we, you know, according to my understanding of, you know, a young earth creation, isn't it fascinating that over 7,000 years odd of the history of this world, God saw to it that my DNA was not lost? 
child upon child upon child, millions upon millions and billions and billions of people have been born in this world. Billions of kids have been born, but God preserved my genetic information so I could be born. And you say, God, how did you do that? <laughs> it's like, yeah, all things. I know for a fact that God worked even my genetic information over... You know, billions of births, He preserved that so that I could stand here today. So if you exist, you know that God has done something. If you're a child of God, God has preserved you in that way. Isn't that fascinating? This picture here, you, you've heard me talk about this before because this absolutely stuns me. You know, you can search the medical world and you can try and find out how many sperm go for a human egg in one moment of fertilization. And you say, all right, you know, which one of those there is Alan? you know, in my fertilization. Which one is going to win the race? You know, all of those sperm, they come and they hit their noses onto the egg. Some of them are slower, some of them are faster. But, you know, there could be, according to some counts, as many as about 20,000 sperm going for one egg, and some, some estimated in the hundreds of thousands. So let's say there's even 10, okay? Let's just make it ridiculous. There's 10 options, and those 10 sperm all put their noses and they start swimming as hard as they can on that egg to fertilize the egg. And as soon as the first sperm gets through the surface of the egg, the surface hardens. So none of, the, none of the rest can get in. Who determines which one gets in so that I can be born? And that's just on one occasion. That's just one incident of conception. That's not all of the times. You know, when my parents were trying to produce a child, child, Absolutely fascinating that all things, I know for a fact that God is going to work all things for my good and His glory because He controlled that in my case. Are you going to say that that's fascinating? You're absolutely stunning that I even exist. And it's an evidence that God has managed so many things just to put me here today so that I can, I can go on with the rest of His purposes so that I can be like Jesus forever and ever and ever. Honestly, man, I could go on with this. This stuff absolutely fascinates me. But here's another one. Think of the hundreds, uh, think of the variables in the ways in which people even fall pregnant. I mean, God manages the guy sitting in a room full of people, and he sees a woman on the other side, and he thinks, yeah, that's the one. I mean, why not that one, or that one, or that one? And God manages that. You might think this is so arbitrary. You might think, oh, well, I'm a free person. I can choose anybody that I want to get uh, emotionally engaged with. But God knows. He's, he's already determined that this is going to happen because that must happen. That individual must fall in love with that per person in order for this to eventually happen so I can be here. What makes you love somebody? Who knows? God knows. And he's saying, you know what? You don't know all of these things, but I know, and it's a fact, and you can bank your life on this. I'm working all of this stuff for your good and for my glory. And you can say, God, thank you. Because if I was even in charge of, of one conception like this, I mean, how would I, how would I even manage this one thing? But God manages every single, I mean, how many sperm since, the, since Adam that he has to control? Whether it was falling in love, whether it was the horrors of sexual violation, miscarriages and abortion. God controls every single life, every single little swimmer, trying his best. And God determines that I will stand here on this day, so he knows that specific one. I mean, what, if I can just use my imagination here for a moment, okay? 
Imagine the angels in heaven. Where, where God calls the angels around and he says, Okay, guys, just watch this. I'm about to produce the conception for Alan. This is the moment. Okay, this is a perfectly right time. This is all going to happen. Watch this. And the angels are all watching. Like, bah, there it happens. And they're like, whoa. You know, the, the purposes of God have been full, fulfilled in that one moment. How do I know God is going to glorify me? Because he did this. Because he brought me into existence in this specific way. I mean, not only that, but the exact times of history when each individual lives. I wasn't born in, in the 1800s or in 500 B.C. God produced me in this world. All of those variables. I mean, imagine I hadn't met my wife. Imagine I was born three years earlier or later and my wife had married somebody else and I wouldn't have had these beautiful girls. But God is, has called them to himself and he's going to glorify them. So that had to happen. That one you know, blind date that I went on and met my wife. Bizarre, man. Don't worry. God says, I'm working all things. That blind date, I'm working that for your good and for my glory. It's like absolutely certain, man. I, I'm hoping that this, the nature of the certainty is like grabbing a hold of your heart and you're beginning to feel some hope welling up inside of you. Think of the influence of parenting styles and you know, the, the influence that that has on the course of a child's life. You know, and the, and the partner that they might marry, just as an example. Think of the influence of riches or poverty, the country that you live in, um, you know, the country where you're born, and customs, you know, social customs as you're growing up. Think of um, personal likes and dislikes. You know, unless somebody grabs me and puts a knife to my throat, you can be pretty sure I'm not going to die from mushroom poisoning because I really, you know, I hate mushrooms. It's personal. How, do, how did that happen? How did it just happen that I don't like mushrooms and some, some other people you know, might hate oranges or buravos or something? Who, you know, where does that come from? But how much of your life does that determine? Your sense of humor. You meet somebody. Isn't that one of the things that you find most compelling about another person? Is if you just meet them and you're laughing together about something. You just mesh, man. And where does that come from? How is it that two people just mesh? All things, man, all things God is working together because He's going to glorify you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. What about personal aptitude? You know, like Nikhail and Monica here in the church meeting at university, studying together. It's like, <laughs> I mean, God works that, the all things. What about... Um, the array of health issues different people suffer from, people who die young. You know, it seems they should have gone on so much longer and all the things that they could have done, but they didn't. And all that they accomplished, Stephen Sharnock, for example, who writes these massive volumes of theology and he dies, I can't remember, like 28 or something. I don't remember when he died, but he was a young man. Think of diseases that change things about your body and, and cause people to respond to you differently. Think of injuries and accidents and war and murder. Throughout all of the wars, God saw to it that none of the important ancestors in my family line died so that I couldn't be born. I mean, God is in control of every single person who loads a gun and shoots a bullet at random and it didn't hit my grandfather while he was in the Second World War in Egypt. He was lying in trench warfare next to his friends and his friends 
once one buddy got shot and a bullet came and hit the ground between his legs. And he, his buddy on the other side said, hey, Dave, you better start praying. And he said, hey, I never prayed before I got into the battle and I'm not going to start praying now because that's just hypocritical. And I'm so grateful God preserved my grandfather through that war. Otherwise, I wouldn't have existed. But there was no little thin, there wasn't a thin little thread. There was a chain, man. God was going to glorify me. So my grandfather had to survive the Second World War and trench warfare at night with bayonets. I mean, like, who knows who's stabbing who in trench warfare at night? It's just a lot of blood and gore, and God saved my grandfather. The food that you eat. You know, a lettuce, for example. Where does that lettuce come from? The nutrition that you put in your body, the chicken. Who raised the chicken? How did God preserve that person's life so he became a chicken farmer? You know, I mean, you get my point. The variables here are just absolutely stunning. And these are the all things, man. You don't just eat an apple. There's an apple tree. Somebody planted that thing. Who preserved the apple seed? You know, who planted that tree? You know, who preserved the life of that person? Even if that person's an unbeliever, God puts that person to plant a tree so that one of the sons or daughters of the Most High God can eat an apple on that day. All things. God had to place and preserve a crop farmer. God had to place and preserve a gardener. God had to place and preserve a shepherd to look after the sheep. God had to preserve and place a cattle farmer. God had to... Um, develop minds that could produce machines that could cultivate God had to produce people who could develop companies that could process food and create vehicles and roads God had to perfectly manage every raindrop every wind every cloud every flame of fire every locust every white fly every eel uh, eelworm and every little bit of food that you've ever eaten, God had to manage all of that stuff in order to place you here. And when he says, and we know, <laughs> you can say, Yo, I exist. Therefore, the basis of this knowledge has been proven in the fact that God has orchestrated all these things to bring me to this point in my life. What, what an absolutely astounding reality. You find, I'm hoping you find this astounding. I'm hoping God is working in your hearts as I'm speaking, and you're saying, wow, God, this is, this is actually amazing what you've done to bring me to this point. And God, thank you that this gives me certainty that as a child of God, I will be glorified. I will be one of the son's many brothers, and I will be like him forever and ever in eternal bliss. Think of how the food is digested in your body, the continual functioning of your organs, the maintenance of your you know, the, all the, the microbiome in your body. Remember, remember we spoke about that little bug before, that um, bacterial flagellum. What an astounding reality. Functioning of your organs, the, the, you know, functioning of all those little micro, microbes in your body, the manner in which your cells pro process the nutrients, how culture and society works as a network to preserve human life. No man's an island. We need each other. So it's not just an individual. It's a whole network that that supports us. Absolutely astounding. So how does God bring this about? One verse. We start with foreknowledge in verse 29. For those whom God foreknew, He also predestined. Verse 30 just simply says, 
those whom God predestined. So he loved his people before the beginning of time with an affection. He predestined them in verse 30. He called them in verse 30 in such a way, not just the call, but that call like he issued to Lazarus that raises that individual from the dead into newness of life, like we're going to celebrate in this baptism today. And then he justifies, he declares that person just, even though I'm not just. Romans 4 verse 5, we, however to the man who does not work, but trust God who justifies the wicked or the unrighteous, literally unrighteous in the Greek. He justifies the wicked. A person who is wicked or unrighteous, God declares that person righteous at the same time. And how can that be true? Because God looks at Jesus and he says, Jesus is absolutely righteous. And every time God looks at me, I know that he's looking at me with a joy that he has in his face when he looks at his beloved son, that beautiful good toward which we are going, the glorious one. And that ends in glorification, the good the making us the one of many brothers, making us the bride of Christ forever and ever in a blissful and glorious harmony. This kind of knowing, I need not say that this kind of knowing is absolutely critical to motivating you through the event, like that guy, my next door neighbor, trying to fix his old alpha sud and the spanners and hammers are flying out of the door. You know, in those difficult and horrible times that you experience in your life, if you... Do not have a firm grasp on this. You honestly don't have any real motivation. This is what motivates believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So in conclusion, I say, if you're a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can know for absolute certain that God is working every single aspect of your life and this universe for your good and for His glory. How can I know this is true? Because God has already completed many of the actions required to make this happen. He has known you affectionately forever. He has chosen you to be His own. He has chosen to make you like His glorious Son. He has chosen to include you in a glorious new eternal family, being like His Son, with the Son being the heroic first. If you exist, believer... That is evidence that God has already taken vast action to ensure your glorification. All that remains for God to do now is to actually glorify you. Let this be the motivation in your moments that you face in your days. Lord, as we have just looked at these three verses, you know, Lord, that there's just so much more that we could have found in this text. It is so glorious. It is so wonderful. But Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand this big idea. We've already read in Romans 8.26 that we don't even know what to pray for. We're so small and so weak and our, we're so finite, so limited, so sinful that we cannot even, we can't even think, this is what I should pray to God for. And Lord, I pray that you would help us in our weakness today just to lay hold just a little bit more of your vast and glorious plan, your vast and glorious purposes, your telos that you have planned for us. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to own this. Help us, Lord, to be motivated by this. Help us, Lord, when we're struggling to get out of bed in the morning. Help us, Lord, as we, we face very irritating interactions with people who are being sassy with us or, or rude or offensive. Help us, Lord, to be humble because we know 
we know, we know with absolute certainty that you are working this together for my good and for your glory. And ultimate glorification will come and this will be so worth it. Lord, please help us, we pray. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.